Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Your Book, to the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm Daisy Buchanan, your host and the author of The Sisterhood, a love letter to the women who shape us, out now in paperback. Before we start, I have an announcement. Lovely literary listeners, we couldn't do this without you, and so I wanted you to be the first to know about a book bonus. This week, I'll be launching Further Reading, a newsletter for fans of the podcast and fans of reading and writing. You can expect essays inspired by the books I've loved. Imagine something between the LRB and the Beano, as well as book reviews, bonus episodes and special treats for subscribers. Look out for a monthly book club where I'll be able to chat with you all about a novel that we read together and a creative career clinic where I'll be on hand to hold your hand and guide you through the practical and emotional dilemmas that you're dealing with, whether you work with books for a living or whether that's a dream you want to turn into reality. In the future, subscribers will also get first dibs on tickets to live events and entry into the Shelfie sweepstakes. What's that, I hear you ask? Well, it's a chance for you to win all of the books. Further reading goes live on Wednesday the 26th of February, where I'll be sharing some really big news, and I would love for podcast listeners to be the first to hear it. You can subscribe at furtherreading.substack.com. The first month will be completely free for everyone. And the first 10 listeners to subscribe will win an entirely free subscription. So you'll be getting access to the book club, the career clinic and the competitions for the price of a library book. Nada. Now on to our episode. For our fifth series of Your Book, we're in the USA. And this week we're in Los Angeles, channeling Eve Babbitts and Joan Didion. Our guest is no less fabulous. We have the novelist, columnist and screenwriter Jessica Knoll. Her blistering debut, The Luckiest Girl Alive, was such a smash hit that Reese Witherspoon immediately signed up to produce it. We talked about the art of memoir, Anne Nan, and the one book you need to read if you ever want to write your own screenplay. Well, so this area over here is actually my office, and I keep, I try and keep this shelf just pretty clean looking so do you write at this beautiful beautiful table i do what but kind of, what is that is it's burlwood yeah really? um i write okay. here this was all set up to be my office but i have another office space upstairs and then in the summer that sounds funny to say summer in los angeles because you're like isn't it always summer <laughs> but it does get chillier in the winter months but in the summer I actually write on the front porch so I like to move around but this is primarily my office area where I do do most of my writing and so I try and keep the shelves pretty clean and organized um, and it's a combination of books that are my favorite books books that I find like inspire me on a day I'm having writer's block and then also books that I haven't yet read yet that I'm I want to read um, because sometimes I'll just be walking around and I'll make eye contact with something and think oh I've been I, I'm in the mood to read that book right now so what's on your to read pile oh your house will pay I just bought this um by Stephanie Cha Steph Cha sorry 
Um, this just came out a couple of weeks ago, and well, I, I don't know that book. Yeah, it it's um, it is it's a crime novel, and I think it is about gangs in Los Angeles. Los Angeles is violent history, and I think it's set in the 80s. So I've heard really amazing things about this book, so I actually just picked it up on Sunday, and it has this nice yellow font, so <laughs> it's over here and with my... great. So it's fiction, with, but with, it's sort of rooted in, a, in recent history. Yes, yep. Where do you buy your books? Do you have a yes, so, LA shop you love? Yeah, so I buy them from Diesel, which is an independent bookstore. They have several locations in Los Angeles, and there's one in Brentwood where I lived. It's right down the street. So. And do you tend to kind of go there with a purpose, or do you just go in and browse and see what jumps out? I almost always go there with a purpose. I know exactly when I want to buy, and then I usually end up picking up another book that catches my eye while I'm in there that I wasn't expecting to buy. And occasionally I've gone in there and just asked the sellers, like, I really want a good mystery, and they'll give me their recommendations. So what's the best book they've recommended to you? It's actually on this other shelf over here, um, and it is a British author, Anthony Horowitz, ah. um, The Magpie Murders. It's like a cozy mystery. Do you know that term, a cozy? Yes. Like yeah. Cozy crime. Yes. I loved it. I read it last year over the holidays, and it was just the perfect tone for sitting around a fire, like drinking hot chocolate, and this book was absolutely perfect for that mood. That is a great recommendation. Yeah, it's a great book. Because I, I don't really love a lot of crime, but if it's got that that feeling oh, where it's, it's very cozy, gently spooky. It's very gentle. Than... There's humor in it. I, I like, I need, normally I need to have some level of humor in the gory crimes that I tend to gravitate toward. Otherwise it just gets too bleak. So yes, that was a recommendation. I'd never read that author before. That came from Diesel Brentwood and I absolutely loved it. I, that, and I think Anthony Horowitz is quite prolific. Isn't yes, he, he is. He, lots to get into. Yeah, mm-hmm, yes. Uh, what else would you recommend about genre? Do you have any like funny books or cozy crime books you've oh really connected with? Actually, this shelf over here is great for that. So Caroline Kepney's You is one of my all-time favorite books. Do you like that book, Beatrice? My dog is sniffing oh. the book. So this is actually now a TV show. You can watch it on Netflix. But the And I love the show, but I always love the book more, <laughs> no matter how well done the show is. Um, and I saw this recommended uh, on the Today Show a couple of years ago, and I saw it had a blurb from Stephen King, so I was like, the master has anointed it. <laughs> he has spoken. It is hysterical and very erotic. Ooh. It's a very erotic book. It's about a stalker, but you're in the head of the stalker and he becomes kind of the anti-hero of the story and you're on his side even as he continues to commit these horrific crimes. And I just think it's absolutely masterful that you can, that Caroline Kepnes mm. has managed to get the reader to root for the psychopath in the story and to laugh with him. That sounds fantastic. That's a real feat, yeah. isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I have that. And then what else? I mean, Shirley Jackson makes me laugh out loud. I have so many of her books. I have a few over here. I have some back over there um, on the other shelf. And Because I think we forget that how funny she, she is, is and how so, keenly observant she is. So funny. And then someone else who's a little bit more modern in that vein, is Otessa Moshfeg. Oh, I loved her other book, My Year of Rest and Relaxation, right which there. I can see down there. Yeah. Producer Dale has read Eileen. That's yes. on my to-read pile. So this, this is a great example of books that I leave out, and I just know one day I'll be in the mood to read them. I've had this book for a year and a half now. I read My Year of Rest and Relaxation first, but Eileen is her... Actually, I think it's her second book because I think she has a collection of short stories. So this is her her second novel, I believe. It came out a couple of years ago. And I bought it after reading My Year of Rest and Relaxation, which I absolutely loved. But I just, for whatever reason, didn't pick it up. And the other Sunday, my husband was watching football and I was so bored. And I was sitting on the couch right there and my I made eye contact with this book and I was like, it's, I just, it was time. I read it in less than 48 hours. Wow. 
It is spectacular. And I think she actually does, Otessa Moshveg does the introduction for Shirley Jackson's collection of short stories there. And there is something very Shirley Jackson-like in her voice. But she, I have to say this about both of her books, I have never, I've never experienced a writer who pulls such a fast one on me because Mm. the books start out very dark and almost kind of oily and grimy and you don't feel a lot of tenderness toward the character and there is something in the end she switches into this like very this very heartfelt kind of pivotal climactic moment where I close her books and I'm crying it is such like an emotional roller coaster to read her books and I'm in complete awe of her and she did that with my year of rest and relaxation as well I think about that final paragraph at least once a week. It really moved me. And she's also very, very funny. So that's another recommendation I have for kind of a funny, darker read. That really reminds me, especially um, The Favourite Sister, which I loved, where you've got these women who are, you know, tender monsters, and you see them in every light. Tender monsters. That's my beat. I love that. (laughs) You know, you you have to love them, even though they are so unlovable. And I think Mm -hmm. there are definitely, you know, parallels there. And again, this sort of idea of kind of, you know, what you do when you have everything and what happens with great privilege, which I loved in in Rest and Relaxation, too. And that sort of, I mean, I was really, I think I was so, I loved that book so much, but I was also furious when it came out because I thought, I would have tried to write a novel about just <laughs> having a year of being year. on drugs and unconscious <laughs> because that's a great idea. I didn't yeah. know you were allowed. I know. I, she's so original and it almost, although that, Eileen is more of a thriller, but my year of rest and relaxation, she makes it feel like this exciting adventure just mm. when she would decide to leave the house. Like it was thrilling. And I, I just... Her mind is brilliant. I, I can't even... And I'm obsessed with Dr. Tuttle. I think that's one of the smartest what comic characters of all time. Is it Dr. Tuttle the Herd? Like, terrible therapy. He's, like, just prescribing all oh, of the weird the, drugs. Oh, Tuttle. Her. Dr. Tuttle. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, my gosh. The, the, the me being psychotherapist. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I thought you said Dr. Turtle. And I was like, is that a character? I don't know. Yeah. That's the one that she hallucinates. Yeah. Uh, what else can I see, Danny? Oh, I see Maestra on the subject of erotic oh, books. That's yes. a big fuss at home yes. when that came out. Oh my gosh. I read that book when it came out. I guess it's been out about three years now, right? It's, it's been out a while. couple of years. The anti-heroine of that story is so dynamic. I'm very attracted to very dynamic voices and that character has it in spades. So yeah, I loved that book. So interesting, I think, because there's so much momentum in that story, but mm-hmm. the momentum is coming from her. And even though it's sort of, it's action packed, it's really her voice and her energy mm-hmm. that's driving it forward. She such a singular voice. I love it. Oh, that actually, I would love to talk about that Let's book. talk about Fright Lights Dig City by, <laughs> I can never say his name right, that Jay, Jay McKinney. McKinney. Because there are so many, like McKinney. Yeah, I think it's Jay McKinney. Um, this book was recommended to me about 10 years ago by the editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan when I was working there, um, Kate White. She was the editor-in-chief at the time. And she told me, she was one of the people who told me I should write my own book. This was before I'd written Luckiest Girl Alive, my first novel. And she said, you should just write a really definitive book like Bright Lights, Big City. I I'd heard, I love that as an instruction. Go and write right, the great American novel. Generational book, yes. I'd heard that phrase, of course, but I didn't know what that book was. I didn't know what she was talking about, so I went and looked it up. Again, one of those books that the voice just sucked yeah. me in, and I read within 24 hours. And also, a book, one of the books I returned to time and time again when I was writing Luckiest Girl Alive. There was something about it that really energized me. Um And again, he works – I'm very attracted to stories about – when I was writing Luckiest Girl in particular, about young people in New York City making their way in the magazine publishing world. Because, of course, that was my journey and that was the path of the character in my first book, Luckiest Girl Alive. So 
the uh, character in Bright Lights Big City is a fact checker at The New Yorker. And then another book, which is actually on my shelf over there, is um, Sylvia Plath's Bell Jar. Yes! Yeah. Do you know the thing <laughs> I think about all the time? You know, who's that woman? Right at the beginning, that scene, they're all in their black dresses, and there's the woman who's a friend. She's the blonde oh, girl in the white dress. Not Denise. I, I just. Tinsley or something. No, it's not Tinsley. I just reread that first chapter like a month ago. I swear, it be- let's go look at it. We'll go find her name. I've always I swear thought, it begins with a D. I want to write a novel about her. <laughs> oh, I know. She has the night with the disc jockey. There it is. Okay. Doreen. I'm telling you it's Doreen before I even open it. Let's All see right, if I'm right. For a dollar, it's Doreen. You <laughs> hear the sound of pages turning. You're right. It's Doreen. Doreen. I was right. You win. <laughs> I get a dollar. <laughs> The Bell Jar is another book that I read continuously while I was working on Luckiest Girl. And I'm really, you know, in both those novels, Bright Lights, Big City, and in The Bell Jar, I mean, those characters are really struggling with their mental health while living in the supposedly one of the most glamorous cities in the world. And I think the juxtaposition of those two things, something that I on a personal level related to um, and also found very compelling as a reader. It's so, so true that so it's, I guess, you know, even in The Devil Wears Prada that, you know, millions of girls would be mm-hmm. so grateful for this, that you can see what it looks like from the outside. And that's what that first chapter of The Bell Jar does so arrestingly. Yeah. It's almost like Instagram before Instagram. You like right. see the image and then it's peeling it back. Of the parties and all. Mm. And she even talks about in that first chapter that if anyone from her hometown were to see the picture, because they take all these pictures and they're in the paper, that they would think that this girl, you know, had just seized the world and was living out there living her best life when in reality she felt very lost and very alone. I see you got wild by Cheryl Strayed. Oh, it, it's yeah. interesting how that's a book that like I love and so many of my friends love. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised it doesn't come up more on this podcast. Is that something that you sort of come back to? It is not one of the books that I came back to often. However, it was a book, you know what it was actually for me, it was one of those books that I read after seeing the movie. Do you ever have that where you see the movie and it makes you want to read the book? So, and then of course I have the movies that I'm excited to see because I read the book, but that was one of the inverse experiences for me. And I picked it up because at the time I picked it up. Reese Witherspoon had just come on as a producer for Luckiest Girl Alive and Wild was coming out. And so I went to see the movie. I wanted to see what it was all about. Um, And it was one of the first films that she had produced under her new um, banner and, and then picked up the book after seeing the movie and being incredibly moved by it. And I mean, I found the book absolutely like, just gutting like it it really moved me and touched me how do you think it changes your relationship with the book to see the film first do you think you get a different experience than you would if you'd come to the book then the film yeah I guess I mean it has to right um I've never given it much thought about what exactly that experience is like I mean I find it to be one of those because in the movie obviously it's distilled very much distilled Mm. you don't get as much of the story even in the movie version of wild they had to write out uh, i think it was her brother's character her brother or her sister doesn't appear in the movie because they just don't have the bandwidth yeah so i think it is actually nice to see a movie or even a tv show that you really um connect with and to be to know that like you get to go to the book and have an even richer, deeper experience with the, the story. Tip of the iceberg, and yeah. that's enormous universe of it exactly. waiting for you. Yeah. What's your experience been like with the filming of Luckiest Girl Alive? Is it difficult to see how the story that can be told in like a couple of hours on screen just isn't the whole novel? Yeah. Um, well, actually, I so I adapted it myself, and thinking about. That makes me think of this book, uh, Mignella on Mignella. This book was given to me by 
the producer, Bruna Papandria, um, on the Luckiest Girl Alive movie to read before I adapted the novel myself because I'd never written a screenplay before. And this is Anthony Magnella. He did The English Patient and The Talented Mr. Ripley. And he's a screenwriter. And so she wanted me to read this um, as kind of an instruction manual about how to do it. And... I absolutely loved it. I love the adaptation process. I love writing screenplays. Um, I think it's the opportunity to like really dig into like who these people are because you have to be really concise about who these people are, what their motivation is, um, and in a way that clarifies who they are for you. Even though I wrote the book and I know this character through and through, I felt like I got to know her better when I was forced to um, kind of edit her down even more. That's really interesting. Yeah. So what do you think you learned in the screenwriting process? About the character that I didn't know about her before? Well, it's interesting because the script has gone through a few iterations at this point. Um, I recently, I wrote it, I guess, four, three or four years ago now, and we now have a director, so I did a director's pass. Um, and... I've learned what I've learned about her. It's hard to kind of separate that from the culture at the moment mm. because at the time that I wrote the book and I wrote this character, it was kind of the pre Me Too movement. So working on the script, you know, in this era, I had to consider who she would be if we believed she was living in a time where women were emboldened to tell their stories. Um, and so I actually got to know her, I feel like, in a different era than I had originally conceived her in. And I had to imagine that her world was actually different in the script version than it was in the book version, even though only four years had passed. I keep seeing that book around everywhere and I've not read it. And I think the universe is telling me to read it. Homefire by Camilla Shamsi. So that's a book I haven't read yet. But it's an it's one of those that I put on my shelf because I'm like, this is... I have like, I have so many books I have to read. These all in here are filled with books that I have to read for blurbs, for friends, um, just books that I think sound so interesting and I actually, and I really, really want to read. Um, so I have to kind of prioritize what are, what's kind of at the top of the TBR pile. And that book is one of them. This is so beautiful though, because there's so much space for the eye to see what books are there. Like the way I've got everything at home, right? it's out of control, but you can't even tell. It's it's just a massive It's uh, Behind these doors, it's completely out of control. (laughs) Uh, So what is it that made you pick up Home Fire? What are you excited about? Oh, um, I read, so I read this blog, Cup of Joe, And she recommended it by saying that she was reading one of those books that made her just want to get through the workday so she could go home and finish the book. And I was like, oh my God, that is the best feeling when you're out in the world, running your errands, doing all the things you have to do, and you get that little thrill, like, I get to go home to this amazing book that I'm reading. When you just want everyone to go away. You when just want everyone to go away. And it doesn't happen with every... dinner. Yeah. That's when I know. Yeah. <laughs> when you skip a meal. A book is so good, you'll skip a meal. Um, yeah, it doesn't happen with every book I read. So when I hear someone describe the experience of reading the book like that, that piques my interest. If there was, like, one book in this pile where you're like... This is, you must read this book before the oh. year is out to me. What would it be? Well, so it's not a new book, but my one of my absolute favorite books is The Secret History by Donna <gasps> Tartt. Oh, <laughs> yep, right there. I've read that book maybe four times now. I think it has one of the most gripping opening lines of any book I've ever read. And um, could you read it for yes, us? I then will. Because I don't want to botch it to try and recall it from memory. This is actually the reason I read this book. Because I think this book came out in 1993 or 1994. It's it's about 25 years old. But How long have you had that copy? That looks I know, so it looks loved. pretty old. I've only had it for about six or seven years, I would say. Maybe a little longer than that. But the reason I read this book is because an editor I used to work with at Cosmopolitan told me that he thought that the first line of this book is the best first line of any book he's ever read. And I was like, well, I have to pick up this book. Um, And then I absolutely fell in love with it. 
The snow in the mountains was melting and Bunny had been dead for several weeks before we came to understand the gravity of our situation. I just love that. So this- it Almost doesn't need to bother with the rest of the book. Well, this, <laughs> it's all there. This, I thought about this book actually a lot while I was writing The Favorite Sister because I've always thought of this book, not a whodunit, but a why done it. Because you know in the first line that Bunny is dead mm. and that this group of people had something to do with it, but they're all friends. Mm. You come to find out. So- you keep reading to understand how it all fell apart and how it kind of devolved into homicide. Um, and I I really wanted to kind of capture that same feeling in The Favorite Sister. I just, I loved that tension of it. And in a weird way, because I, I suppose perhaps it's my aversion to a lot of kind of, you know, murdery books is... Um, I don't like the shock. So if I know that the biggest shock is over <laughs> you with. Can mentally prepare it's yourself. It's a bit sort of Brechtian. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. But I think that's another book as well where that singular voice of the the main character is just yeah. so, so and clear. Very and funny. Also very mm. funny too. Like moments, there's a description of a cat having diarrhea in a car that made me howl with laughter. Like there are very funny moments in this book. Have you read the, oh God, is it The Rules of Attraction? Yeah, The Rules of Attraction. No. What, I mean, I have mixed feelings. It's about, yeah. Alice, yeah. But because, you know, there are moments in The Secret History where like someone who's very much outside of the clique mm-hmm. will come in and it's almost like doors being opened and almost like you can hear the music from a party mm-hmm. and they're like, no, and it's like, what's going on behind those doors? Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously... The Secret History is, I think, the better book by far, but it's re- it's almost like a... Right. Well, it's like The Great Gatsby. It's like the observer, the person who's trying to infiltrate mm. this very close-knit group of people. And also, not just a close-knit group of people, but like a world, a completely different world that this person was raised. I mean, the, the narrator is from California, I think, right? And they're all supposed to be Bennington College, which is where Donna Tartt went. So it's this very kind of like elite liberal arts Northeast. I think it's an Esquire recently. There was a long oral history of Bennington in the late 80s. Oh, yes. And and there was something else about why the movie version of The Secret History was never made because... There, Gwyneth Paltrow was supposed to be in that film in the 90s, which would have been perfect casting, but for whatever reason, it all fell apart. And it was really fascinating to hear why that book didn't get made, but then The Goldfinch just recently mm. came out as a movie. So it was like, what you know, why was that book able to become this movie with Kate Blanchett, but this other wildly beloved and successful novel of hers just... And with someone like Gwyneth Paltrow attached, like, wasn't able to all come together. It's one of my favorite books, The Dead Avocado by Elaine Dundee. I don't know if you know that mm-hmm, one. Again, young people making their way in the world. I think you'd love it. She What's goes it called? to, it's called The Dud Avocado. It's okay. Sally J. Goose turns up in Paris with an inheritance and she's a teenager and she just causes all of the trouble. It's really, really oh, funny right. and dark and mad. Yeah, I think it was written in the 50s or 60s. Oh, okay. I um, need to read that because I'm, I'm trying to write something that's set in the 70s right now. So I'm looking for very voicey novels that are kind of not set in modern day times just to get like a feel for how people talk. Again, from what you said, <laughs> I think it's up your alley. But there's lots of stuff about it because that really is a book that so many people love and okay. it has been options so many times but never made and people yeah. were like taking options out just to stop other studios from making it right. and now you know it will never be in a way it kind of it it adds I think a little bit to the mythology of a book like that mm. you know like that it almost came together but then it fell apart and I guess the upside of it is well if they made a great movie great but a lot of times the film adip- adaptation of a book is bungled and like doesn't really successfully capture the book. That kind of book when so many people have such a powerful, intimate yes. relationship with someone's always going to be disappointed. Right, right. So in some ways it like preserves the integrity of the book, I guess, if you have to look at it, the silver lining of it. I don't know if you're allowed to say if you are, but are you uh, adapting anything or doing any screenwriting of other people's books? Or Yes, this actually this book right here. Hey! Uh, Matt Ruff, Bad Monkeys. Um, this is in my yellow pile of books. <laughs> um, so I adapted this two years ago. Something I've discovered though is 
one, this industry moves very slowly. Um, so I've adapted my first book, Luckiest Girl Alive. We have a director on it. We're making great headway. It's still just very slow going. I mean, I'm um, like camped out at my oh. local cinema. I am so <laughs> desperate to see this. Well, let's hope. Let's hope. So I adapted that. Then I adapted Bad Monkeys by Matt Ruff. That, as far as I know, we have a script that's approved by the studio. It's just also a matter of finding director and getting it made. I am in the process of adapting my second book for TV. I've written the pilot for that and we are moving forward with a network I can't say yet who it is because the deal isn't formally done yet um but yeah I really love the adaptation process of not just my own books but other people's books it's just a it's a I have to say like it's a weird industry I've learned in the last couple of years because it's like you're writing something and you're working on something but it's it may not ever make it out into the world. And that's a very, coming from, you know, writing a novel is a very, uh, it can be a difficult endeavor, but at the end of the day, you know that it's going to be out there in the world. People will have something in their hands to read. So it's more or less what you wrote, that the editing is very collaborative and it is unlikely that anything in that book is going to be like, right. whoa, I didn't write that. Right. Yes. There's much, I would say there's much less collaboration on a book than there is in, uh, in writing a script. So yeah, we'll see. But that, I mean, it's a great book. It's like a, a short, little, kind of wild, rambunctious story. Um, and the main character, Jane Charlotte, is such a trip. She's so much fun. Um, so it was a really fun project to take on. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We'll be back to you, Jessica, soon. Now it's time for my Steal of the Week, a book so rich and decadent that it's better than eating a catering pack of goo pudding, only there's no remorse, no indigestion, and no giant pile of useless ramekins that will fall on your head as soon as you open the cupboard. This week, it's another book that I've come embarrassingly late to, the Pulitzer Prize-winning Olive Kitteridge by Elizabeth Strouch. Olive is the brusque, complex, down-to-earth dreamer who is truly gifted at seeing every single citizen in the town of Crosby, but sometimes misses the people closest to her, including herself. I wanted to read this before reading Strout's new book, Olive Again. All I can say is that I was in a position to give a Pulitzer Prize I'd award it to Strout too. Olive Kitteridge is published by Penguin and out now. Now, back to Jessica. If I could give you a um, hundred billion dollars and you're like, you can adapt anything, you can cast it, you can do whatever you want with this movie, what book would you choose? And I, if I, well, I would choose one of my books first, but if I had to choose somebody else's book. I mean, your books are happening. <sighs> I hope so. Knock on, knock on this Burlwood desk right here. Um, any book in the world. That's interesting because I've thought about that before and what it would be. Um, oh, you know what it is? Scratch everything. 
I would want to adapt A Rather Haunted Life, which is the biography of Shirley Jackson, because I think you could do something, it's on my other bookshelf over there, but I think you could do something really cool with telling her story, but also like cutting it. Like, I think you could make her life story sort of like a dark mystery. Mm. And I just think there's so much you could play with. It's a goal of mine to see authors get the biopic treatment. Like I want authors to be heroes the way we see like Olympians are heroes yeah. or politicians can be heroes. Like I want to see... You want to do the Oliver Stone version. Yes, exactly. Shirley Jackson's life. I would yeah. love that. And I, I know. feel like we're putting this out into the universe. Someone will hear that and it will set in a chain of events. Kate, and I've always thought Kate Winslet should play her. Yes. yes. I would <laughs> truly love to see that. Uh, what else have we got here? Oh, have you read The Art of War? Yes, I so I read The Art of War when I was writing Luckiest Girl Alive because in the book I talk about how the character has read it and she uses the strategies in that book to kind of guide of her through life. <laughs> so I read it so that I could put myself in her shoes thinking like this is how she would approach most situations using those strategies. Did you find yourself doing it? Were you utilizing well, any Well, when I was reading, I, like I can't remember exactly what they are now, but I can remember reading it and thinking, oh, I already do that. <laughs> like I do that in my life. <laughs> but it was validation that it's like this thousand-year-old practice that I've been putting into place. <laughs> Should we go look back at the other Yeah, shelf? let's go look back over there. Look, Beatrice will be following. Yeah, yeah she, she follows us everywhere. <laughs> She's so good, though. She, she is like the most well-behaved dog we've had you in the We've had a few. So I would t- so here's also my pile oh my over here. Oh my god, that unknown name book has the most amazing cover. Uh, this uh, Ananis Nin. So the diary of the diary of Ananis Nin. So I had never heard of Ananis Nin until recently. Actually, my therapist told me about her. Ananis Nin, for those who don't know, um, is kind of famous for publishing her diaries and she has so uh, several volumes of them like six or seven volumes so and this is when she wrote the delta of venus i think is her most yes. famous book and in the so UK. yes she's also written fiction she lived in los angeles she her final year she lived in los angeles in silver lake and so i'm reading her book and i actually i'm my next book that i'm writing it's set in the 70s and i have a moment where the character meets her and i found her house in silver lake and i drove up there a couple of weekends ago and i parked outside the house and i took notes about what the house looked like and i'm thinking anyone inside it might call the police <laughs> and they think <laughs> i'm like modernized was there any period detail remaining uh it was difficult to see because like a lot of houses in LA you just kind of see the garage and the side of the house and the main the kind of magic of the house from the pictures I've seen are the backyard so the backyard has all the views the garden the pool so I couldn't see any of that but I was able to just kind of like capture the street the elevation the sun the breeze in the trees hearing the uh you know the trucks on the 405 down below all of that and just really imagining it did feel somewhat untouched you know I it did feel preserved in some ways but so I'm reading her for the first time it's such a delightful discovery she's a, a an excellent writer and oh, just tires as filthy as her novels um so I keep waiting for it to get a little filthier and I think it might in the later volumes but I also have her book, Henry and June, which is all about the relationship that she had with Henry Miller and his wife, June Miller. And so in this diary, she talks about meeting June Miller for the first time. So it's a pretty fascinating read. Um, And then another book I love to talk about is I have Stephen King's On Writing. And over there, I have Anne Lamont's Bird by Bird. And those are both writing guides and I have read them multiple times and I think I read them um, at different phases in my life. So I've read them before I ever wrote a book. I've read them while I'm writing a book. I've read them when I know I need to write a book but I don't know what I'm going to write about. I always turn 
to Stephen King's On Writing or Anne Lamont's Bird by Bird, and it helps me tremendously. So I always say to people who want to write a book, those are the two tomes that you need to pick up. And are there any parts in either book that stay in your head? It's wait, Anne Lamont just keeps coming up, and I keep yeah. nearly buying that book in bookstores. It's a very limited luggage wise. Really so too many books. it's a nice little slim book, and if you like funny, she is uproariously funny like she I didn't and it's funny because I read that book for the first time in my early 20s when I knew I wanted to write a book but I didn't know what I wanted to write about and I didn't recall it being so funny and then I reread it a couple of months ago and I just maybe it's because I know a little bit more about what she's talking about as a published author now, but I was laughing out loud reading that book. So it's very comical. Um, Stephen King has this advice that um, has stayed with me. Both of them have given me advice that have stayed with me. With Stephen King, the thing that he said that really, really hit home with me is you just need to write your bad first draft and write it as quickly as possible before you lose interest in the topic. And for whatever reason with this third book that I'm writing, that has just resonated with me so deeply because I'm so interested in the topic I'm writing, but I can feel that I need to, in order to maintain that energy and enthusiasm for it, I need to do it really, really quickly take a break and then go back to it and finesse it. And that's not really the way I've written my other two books. And for whatever reason, reading his advice this time around, it was that piece that that stuck with me the most. I'm really interested in the process of writing a book that was set sometime in the past because I sort of imagine myself doing it. And I think that there are people who either, you know, just love the research and really immerse themselves in that first. But I just think I'd always get hung up and be like, oh, but would have they like drunk coffee that way? I must go and check. And like five hours later. Definitely get hung up that way. Just thinking would, what kind of modern appliances did they even have back then? And you know, am I saying that these two girls who are 22 years old would be able to afford a place that had a dishwasher? Did places have dishwashers back that, you know, like you, it is very easy to go down the rabbit hole. And that's why that advice has stuck with me this time around, because his point is like you he has a anecdote in there about a book he wrote where he said it among characters who worked at a police station in Pennsylvania and he was like did I know anything about how the PD works in Pennsylvania absolutely not but I just wrote it before I got bored of the idea and then I did my research and I went back and I fixed any inaccuracies I just seen this copy of this magazine is that research that's amazing this is oh yes so this is research for the third book so Miss so it's March. Marlo Thomas on the cover. Yeah, so it's March 1974 issue of Miss Magazine. It's Gloria Steinem's magazine, right? Okay, so I am writing this book set in the 70s and I was talking to someone about, you know, what were the magazines you read back then? And this is someone who was part of the women's movement back then and she said your character would be reading Miss Magazine so I went on eBay I found copies of Miss Magazine copies of old Cosmopolitans McCall's Red Book and I have a whole collection of them and I'm reading them just to kind of get in the mindset of what a young woman in her 20s in the 1970s would be kind of preoccupied with thinking about talking about and it's just also very entertaining. <laughs> I want to read that looking yeah, at the cover. It looks I know. great. It's got um, Samantha Beaufort in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Yeah, there's some, ama- there's some amazing writers in all of those publications. Um, they really, and fiction and short stories, and it's really a treat, actually. I'm really interested in the fact that you're writing about the 70s and about this period, because um, in my mind, I'm not sure if this is right or not, you obviously know better than I do, but I feel like that was when Cosmopolitan really got going, and it's sort of such an iconic publication. I've read a few of Helen Gurley Brown's books, bless her, the nutter. Yes, Helen Gurley Brown, the one interaction I had with her when I worked at Cosmopolitan is she called and asked to speak to my boss and called me pussycat on the phone. (laughs) Uh, So I had a brush with greatness that way. I do think she came on board in the 60s. If it wasn't the 60s, it was the 70s. And the issue of Cosmopolitan I have is from 1978. 
And once again, it, I just, it is so funny. It made me laugh out loud and it felt very empowering to read, to think of young women reading this advice and how open it was about sex and desire and all of these things. And it made me really proud actually to have worked at that magazine at some point in my career. It's interesting, I think, because I've looked at old issues, how, well, you know, what has dated has dated quite obviously, Mm -hmm. but how much of it is still so fresh and so Mm -hmm. current and so... So resonant. And I think that it's very interesting that definitely perhaps more in the UK than in the US, there's been a sort of backlash, I think, against kind of like women's magazines. Like, oh, they're just telling you how to be thin and how to get a man. And actually, you know, they were really, really radical. There was nothing that was like telling you about being single because that just wasn't really an option forever. You were just a spinster. Right. And it's not, I mean, look, there are, nothing is done perfectly. There are of course, like legitimate criticisms of some of the way, uh, some of the advice that has been dispelled by women's magazines over the years. But I think that they've also done really important political reporting, especially Cosmopolitan in the U.S. now. Yeah, um, and and I do think that I think it there is kind of a proud tradition of denigrating anything that young women yeah. care about um and and magazines women's magazines have never talked down to women yes. so for that I think they should be celebrated I have just remembered about reading something in Cosmopolitan it must have been like the mid-90s <laughs> and it's like you can't was get it a the, nest- was it the scrunchy tip <laughs> that's what I feel like they were infamous for for a while <laughs> I think and this is terrible advice please this, as a caveat this is like the opposite of this is true but someone was claiming that like you can't get STIs if you have sex in the sea Oh, yes, that's ter- that's not sound medical advice at all. <laughs> I'm really glad that even at the time I was like, hold on, I'm not sure that this flies. Uh, what else is in that pile? Is there anything there that you'd like to talk about? So, well, there's Tana French, of course. Oh, everyone who... here loves that book. Yes, well, so Tana French, I have read every single one of her books. I started with In the Woods, um, and that book, scared the crap out of me I remember reading that book in my apartment in New York and my husband had gone to bed and I was up by myself and the little hairs on the back of my neck were standing up and I kept looking over my shoulder like just convinced there was a ghost standing behind me so that was my introduction to Tana French and I have all of her books scattered all over the house And I know that in the UK, actually, they adapted the first, I think, In the Woods and the Likeness. Yeah. Um, It's called, what, the Dublin Murder Squad? That sounds familiar. Yeah, so it's a BBC production, but I saw that it's being released by stars in the U.S., I just don't have a stars subscription, so I I think I need to get that. I because... think you should. <laughs> I, my husband is like, we cannot, we do not need one more streaming service, and I'm like, but it's Tana Friend, so we do. <laughs> just get the free trial. Yeah. Watch that, and <laughs> That's then we'll what I said. I was like, I'll watch it within the seven day free trial. <laughs> How do you deal with it when a book has really scared you? Are you able to sit with that, <laughs> oh or do you need just, like a relaxing chaser? talk about a book that has really scared me it's actually on the other bookshelf over there but Michelle McNamara's um I'll Be Gone in the Dark do you know that one about the Golden State Killer in California she was married to Patton Oswalt who's a American you know the one I'm talking about now right so I guess it came out in 2017 and they finally caught the Golden State Killer but it scared me I mean well it's all true it's a, a true story yes and I mean his He had this just reign of terror uh, in this area of California for many, many years. Um, And he eluded authorities up until two years ago. Um, I read that book and I... I did have trouble sleeping, but at the same time, I mean, it's the same thing with certain scary movies. I know that I'm going to have a difficult time sleeping, but I'm just enjoying myself too much or I'm just too engrossed in the story to put it down. And she, Michelle McNamara, is an amazing writer and she writes about crime with a lot of humanity um she really centers the victims and their stories so I think that makes all the difference like when there's 
you know, compassionate storytelling mm. involved. That's what I can't turn away from, mm. even if the nature of the crime is so disturbing that I'll have trouble sleeping. Because I guess it's interesting because it is happening to humans. And if someone right. is skilled at showing their humanity, then that's, right. that's what yes. gets you. Mm-hmm. Would you ever write nonfiction? Well... I, I guess I have. I've written. I mean, well, I mean, that you've written in your jams and yeah, your essays are so great. Yeah, so I've definitely written op eds um, and and shared very personal, you know, kind of struggles I've had in my own life. It's something I do think about, um, and I definitely infuse my fiction with a lot of, you know, especially with my first book, with a lot of real life inspiration. I think maybe it would be something later in my life that I would think about doing. Right now, I have too many stories that I want to tell. Um, And I think I still have a lot of learning and growing to do before I feel I'm ready to devote more than just an op-ed to some of my own personal experiences. I think that makes a lot of sense. I know there's a lot of conversations at the moment about sort of weird, you know, like there's a personal essay boom, the personal essay right. boom is over, it's up and down. But I think that lots of people, or I see lots of people doing it who maybe aren't aware there's a big gap between the kind of, you know, your story and, and the intimacy of your mm-hmm. story and telling it in a a powerful way, in a in a resonant way and yeah, just telling I it. I think it's I think to have perspective is the most important thing when telling your story. And I I just don't know I don't feel like I have that quite yet. But I I know I'm on my way to it, but it takes a lot of work, I think, to be able to look at your life and your choices critically and to kind of come away with some sort of, not lesson, but just, you know, I don't know. I I, I would never want to... I suppose you don't want to editorialize your life and make it into a story and it's like and then I learned how to be a human and now everything's fine right like I don't want to wrap anything up into a neat little bow not yet (laughs) (laughs) got too many stories yeah quick last look oh well actually it's funny because I was thinking about this book as I was talking about whether or not I would ever write nonfiction. Um, this is a new book I recently picked up, Wild Game by Adrienne Brodeur. I hope I'm saying her last name right. This is memoir, and it just came out a couple of weeks ago. It is an absolutely stunning book. Um, it's, do you know anything about it? Not at all. So it is, it, Adrienne Brodeur, when she was 14 years old, her mother came into her bedroom at night and said, I'm going to embark on an affair with your father's best friend and I need you to help me keep my secret. And it's basically the story of how she kept her mother's secret and and helped her mother basically carry out this affair for the better part of her teens and 20s. And her mother was a narcissist. Her mother had severe boundary issues and it really impacted her in the decision she's made and talk about perspective because I believe she's in her 50s now so she's writing about this life experience that she had in her teens and 20s and I think that she's done her due diligence in really examining the story um, taking the time to learn and grow from it so that she's been able to write this absolutely magnificent tale. Is her mother still alive? She's alive. Um, she's in her 80s and she has, she's suffering from dementia and she's in a, a nursing home. How does that relationship play out? How, not to do a big spoiler, but how yeah. does she feel about her mother? Well, she no. she loves her mother. She still loves her mother. Um, but she now she's a mother herself and she understands. I think that's the other thing is, is she's able to write about motherhood and parenthood, having teenage daughters mm. now herself um, and being able to put herself in her mother's shoes and think about who her mother was, you know, at that stage in her life, raising teenage daughters and and kind of being out, feeling as though she's out of the prime of her life um, in her late 40s and early 50s. So, you know what? It There's not... As a reader, you read it and you're angry. You're angry at this woman for doing this to her mm-hmm. daughter, for roping her daughter into uh, this kind of deceit. 
and um, and for hurting as many people as they hurt. But she displays really no anger toward her mother. She's very generous. And I also think that that comes from many years of healing, you know, and being and sitting with the story and really examining it from all angles and that she's able to tell it as generously as she does is is really a feat it's definitely not a book you'd want to write you know sort of after all that happened you're like 25 going like yeah you need some distance from it yeah that does sound incredible and I'm so interested as well in books about being a daughter because Mm -hmm. there's so much at the moment I think about you know motherhood which is obviously Mm -hmm. a very compelling and interesting subject but the you know the other side of it I think it's so rare to have that explored well so Mm -hmm. I will definitely be yeah reading that I recommend it it's very very good so this is another do you know this book I know the film okay so the reason I ordered this book, I got this like a used copy. Um, I guess it was published in 1973, Looking for Mr. Goodbar by Judith Rossner. It's the so, most amazing author picture of Judith Rossner. I know. <laughs> um, because I had ordered that 1978 copy of Cosmopolitan, they had a section in it where they reviewed books and movies, and they reviewed the movie version of this oh. with Diane Keaton plays the main character. And I didn't know anything about this story, about this movie. It's all based on a true story. It's about a elementary school teacher, a young woman in New York City in the 70s, maybe the 60s. Um, and she lives kind of a double life, I guess, at night. She is out in the nightclubs, uh, meeting men, and, and kind of living a, a life that would have been frowned upon back then for a young single woman. And she ends up murdered by one of the men that she brings home. And so it's all about the, it's all based on a true story about finding the man who killed her. Um, and, and, and kind of that duplicity in the, in this kind of very wholesome life she was living during the day, um, and who she was at night in New York. So I've ordered this because like I said, I'm writing a book set in the seventies and I just thought it would be interesting and kind of educational to to read a story about a young woman in that era do you and your husband like recommend books to each other or do you ever read the same things so my husband and I have completely different tastes in books he likes exclusively it's not just non-fiction because he's not really interested in memoirs or essays he's interested in very um kind of functional reads um he loves books about business about politics um so we yes we we diverge (laughs) on our tastes in books has he brought anything home where you have oh maybe that's interesting maybe that's the business book for me Mm, no definitely not (laughs) yes do you have a favorite foreign edition a favorite cover so, I guess they're all quite yeah, faithful to the so original all my foreign editions for the most part have the same cover with the exception for the French which makes me laugh so hard because I'm like of course the French would just decide <laughs> it's not good enough we're gonna do our own thing where is it because even the colors are different it's like white and red that's so strange that I don't have it out here. Look, here's an example of the book my husband would read. <laughs> American <laughs> this, Default. This is his, Untold Story this of is FDR. His yeah. I like the sound of the battle over gold. Yeah. I love that when you open these drawers filled with books, like they smell amazing. Know, that lovely really book do, scent actually. filling the room. Oh, look, here's the Cosmopolitan. Ah, Isn't amazing. that cool? Isn't that so cool? Oh, that is fabulous. And it's yeah. interesting as well because in terms of the covers, they've actually remained broadly faithful to that layout, yeah. haven't they? I'm are there any great ads? I love an old magazine oh, ad. Oh my God, the ads are amazing. I mean, there's so many cigarette ads, first of all. <laughs> oh, but um, upstairs savings. I know. Paradise Alley with Sylvester Stallone. I don't know why that was troubling me so much. There are like, I mean, some of these Ooh. pictures are so racy. <laughs> Nearly see a nipple in Cosmo Yeah. Kelsey. Oh my God, this profile of Sissy Spacek was amazing. It was so good. It was right after she did um, Carrie. And I'm sorry, can we just look at this advert? I know. I can't wait to get your wind sauce taste on my mind. 
it's amazing too how long the articles are. Like they were, there was a lot of dieting in it, which was pretty depressing. But yeah, pretty incredible. Oh my god, the fabulous 1978 bedside astrologer. <laughs> I used to edit the bedside astrologer when I worked there. Do you still believe? <laughs> I've actually never been a big believer in astrology. I think a lot of it because I don't, I'm a Sagittarius and the characterization of a Sagittarius does not resonate with me at all. I'm like, that is not, it just, I've never identified with it. So I think I'm just not a believer. When I worked at a teen magazine and we never had any money and um, the really, really lovely woman who ran the website was, you know, a little bit of a hippie, but we'd get interns to write the online horoscopes because yeah. at the time oh. there was a lot, the, the stakes online were lower, you know, <laughs> right. and it was just like, watch out for a boy in a blue hat. <laughs> <laughs> so Frankie would commission these and like you know there's some 15 year old writing them and then she'd read the back and like oh things are looking good for yeah. tourists but no Frankie no <laughs> yeah we had an actual astrologer that I worked with and she would submit copy and I would have to edit it down to fit into the program that we used and the thing was there always had to be variation like one had to be about you know one profile had to be about work the other had to be about love the other so and presumably you have to do a little bit of alternation so you can't have like Pisces getting like two work ones two months right, in a row exactly so it, it you know if I was a believer maybe I I that would have dispelled any notions I had about it because it was so um it was so kind of finely calculated but yeah I've never never been much for astrology <laughs> Is that, is that not any relation? So actually, this is fun to talk about. This is my grandmother. Oh, wow, no way. So my grand... The author, not the woman on the cover? Not the woman on the cover. The author, Ann Knoll, is my grandmother. Um, She, in her 50s or 60s, decided that she wanted to write books and she wanted to write bodice riffers, but she's very Catholic. So there's absolutely no sex in this Harlequin bodice ripper. Um, And yeah, on her own, she struck out and found a little publisher and published her books in her 60s. She published about six books. That's a lot. That is inspiring. So did you grow up with... And this is her... She wrote a children's book too. Uh, the Secret Life of Thomas Bradford. Oh, and Thomas Bradford, is I believe, cat. is a cat. It's a cat. And I think this is actually dedicated to me, my grandchildren. Oh, yeah, that is really lovely. Yeah, yeah. Is she still with us? She's still with us. Yep, she's in her 90s now. Yeah. So what was it? That, did you grow up then with writing very much as a thing that, that you could do, that well, could be done? it was interesting because I was always a writer. I, it was something that I loved and that was recognized, a skill that was recognized by my teachers, even very young, um, which I'm very grateful that I got that encouragement. And I guess my grandmother would have written these books, I don't know, I guess I would have been around 10 or 11 when she did it. And she lived in Baltimore and it was just like a local publisher that, that uh, she found there. Um, and she really just did it for herself. Um, and I remember around her house, she had a lot of Harlequin type books because she would read them for inspiration and I would try and read them and mysteriously the book would go missing because somehow I, and I would be looking everywhere for the book and it was somehow it was decided it was inappropriate for 11 or 12 year old me to be reading that book. Yeah. I, you know, sometimes sometimes I'm struck by I don't know what kind of self-actualization she had in at that stage in her life to realize that this was a lifelong dream for her and she was going to go out and and get herself published I just love that moment of thinking well it's now or never let's go yeah Huge thanks to Jessica. You can follow her at Jessica Knoll author on social media. And oh my goodness, please read her books if you haven't already. The Luckiest Girl Alive and The Favourite Sister are both sparkling, pacey, eviscerating explorations of class and identity. They're brilliant thrillers too, but I'm no reader of thrillers, yet I loved them for their bite and their captivating characters. 
I'm Daisy Buchanan, and I have been your book inspector. Thank you so much for joining me, fellow shelf obsessives. You can find me on Twitter at NotRollerGirl and on Instagram at the Daisy Bee. Say hello, suggest some guests, and watch out for shelfies. Visit our show page, acast.com slash booked, for more information about our guests and a list of the books they've talked about. If you have any other queries about the podcast, you can email us at whybooked at gmail.com. Your book is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. Please do subscribe, rate us and leave a review. It's really great to hear what you think and it helps other people to find the podcast. For now, I leave you with this from Eve Babbitts. Luck is like beauty or diamond earrings. People who have it cannot simply stay home. See you next time. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.